Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in History. I'm Marshall Poe, your host. Each week we pick a new history book that we find particularly interesting, and we interview the author of that book. This week I'm pleased to say we have Jay Rubenstein on the show, and we'll be talking about his terrific new book, Armies of Heaven, The First Crusade and the Quest for Apocalypse. I was... Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in History. I'm Marshall Poe, your host. Each week we pick a new history book that we find particularly interesting, and we interview the author of that book. This week I'm pleased to say we have Jay Rubenstein on the show, and we'll be talking about his terrific new book, Armies of Heaven, The First Crusade and the Quest for Apocalypse. I was raised a Lutheran, and we read the New Testament quite a bit, and one of the things that is clear in those books is that Christ was sort of a pacifist. He said that his followers should die for the faith, not fight and die for the faith. You know, turn the other cheek and love thy neighbor and forgive trespasses and that kind of thing. So in this light, the Crusades always appeared to be rather odd to me because here were a group of people that were in fact anointed or allowed by the religious authorities, Christians, to go fight heathens and capture Jerusalem. And I always wondered how they went from the Christ of peace to the Christ of war in the 11th century and the centuries that followed. Well, Jay Rubenstein does an excellent job of explaining how this occurred. And the explanation, I have to say, is really not a simple one. It involves millenarianism. It involves ambition. It involves some rather serious readings of some very odd texts. It involves a hunger for adventure. It involves a desire for salvation. And in a weird sort of way, a kind of mass hysteria, I guess. According to Jay, people actually believed that the end time was coming, and they thought that they had a role to play in bringing it about. And that role would be to fight their way to Jerusalem and liberate it from the Saracens. Along the way, they acted very strangely and in a way that is consistent with people who think the end is coming. They committed horrible atrocities, including cannibalism. They were roasting the Saracens on spits. They spared no one. They plundered. They dug up bodies. They did all kinds of things to desecrate both places and corpses. They acted in ways that were really, in the European context at the time, very unusual. And again, as Jay explains, it's because they thought they were living in a unique time, that being the end time. Once they got to Jerusalem, they wondered whether, in fact, the end time had already come and they were living in it. This is a really fascinating book. Even if you think you know a lot about the Crusades, and particularly the First Crusades, I uh, really recommend that you read it. I enjoyed talking to Jay today, and I think that you'll enjoy the interview. So without further delay, here it is. Hi, Jay. Hi, Marshall. How are you today? I'm doing well, thanks. Oh, you're not really doing well. You told me. Jay told me in the uh, pre-interview that he was sick, and I am too. But I'm glad to have him here. We have Jay Rubenstein on the show, and we'll be talking about his wonderful new book, Armies of Heaven, The First Crusade, and The Quest for Apocalypse. It's an extraordinarily readable book. I told Jay again during the pre-interview that I very much admire the way that he writes. I know because I was kind of quasi, I was a wannabe medievalist at one time. I know how difficult the sources are here, and I know how difficult it is to translate what they say into a readable story. But Jay, it seems, is a master at this. And I highly recommend you pick up the book because it is really a rip and read. There's lots of stuff in here for everybody. I was going to say there are some parts of it that are a little bit disturbing. Would you agree with that, Jay? 
I would agree with that. It got to be a depressing project at times. Yeah, it's a little bit disturbing, but nonetheless, it's a it's an extraordinarily good read, and, and you will learn a lot from it. I know I know that I did. So we want to congratulate Jay on the book. Let me begin the interview, Jay, by asking you to say a few words about yourself. Okay, I teach at the University of Tennessee in Knoxville, and I'm originally sort of from the South. I come from a small town in Oklahoma. In 1989, I won a Rhodes Scholarship and went to Oxford. I'm from a small enough town that they chose to name a street after me. (laughs) (laughs) What town is it? I'm from Kansas, so maybe I've been there. I have relatives in Oklahoma. Cushing, Oklahoma. Cushing, I don't know. Near Stillwater, where Oklahoma State is. Yeah, okay. And then I went to the University of California at Berkeley. By then, I was pretty firmly entrenched in the medieval history game. I wrote my first book which was originally my dissertation at Berkeley on a 12th century monk named Guibert of Nogent. It was an intellectual history, and um, it enabled me to spend a fair amount of time living in Paris while I was doing the research, and that's part of why I've stuck with history all this time is because people keep sending me back to Europe to stay. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, I studied Russia. They kept sending me back to Moscow, so I don't study Russian history anymore. (laughs) That's not quite as good a deal. (laughs) No, it's really not. Um, So why don't you tell us about the genesis of Armies of Heaven? Why why did you write this book? How did you come to write it? Uh, It's been a long and circuitous route to get to the book. I started researching the Crusades about 10 years ago. As I said before, I wrote a book on a French monk who lived in the early 12th century. And the reason why I was attracted to him as a topic was because he wrote about lots of different things. And it seemed like he was a good central point around which I could draw together a lot of different themes. One of those books that he wrote was a chronicle of the First Crusade. I quickly realized that if I gave that book the attention it deserved, I would never finish the dissertation (laughs) or the book. So I kind of set it aside and made a promise to myself I'd come back and work on it a little bit more, which I did. And I, I went into it from the perspective that I was going to write about how the apocalypse was not at all important to the Crusades. That was my Well, my initial assumption, and as you can gather from the title, things changed after a couple of years of fairly serious research. What I came to understand or came to realize was that apocalyptic language was all over the sources, that once you knew to look for it or knew how to read it, it was everywhere. Mm -hmm. And once I realized that, of course, I had to completely change what I was intending to do. One other early idea I had was to write about disillusionment in the First Crusade. and So I wanted to write about how initially there was a huge amount of excitement generated in Europe about the First Crusade and then how and why people gradually lost that edge, lost that that feeling of enthusiasm, um, lost their belief in the the whole idea, as it were. And again, once I realized that the apocalyptic language was everywhere, I started knew that in order to write about disillusionment, I was going to first have to write about what the illusion was. Mm -hmm. And that became in itself such a a huge project that rather than write about the aftermath of the First Crusade, as I'd expected to do, I ended up writing a book about the First Crusade itself and how Mm -hmm. people understood it at the time. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I see. So uh, let me just say that it's always nice when doing research 
or let me put it differently, it's always nice to hear a historian say that their minds were changed by something they found in the sources. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's, it's right. you know, it doesn't happen all that often. But yeah, it's funny because my in my own work, I, I hate to lapse uh, autobiographical here, I, I my dissertation, I, I, was, I set out to prove X, and uh, it, it took me a long time to realize that I had Y. It really did. It took me a really long I hung on to it for a long time, and uh, it, I really did. But I did have why. And, I, uh, I was fairly disheartened. There came a point when I found what I now refer to as the smoking gun. Yeah, right. And I, a diagram showing how 1099 and the conquest of Jerusalem had ushered in the final acts of history. Yeah. And I looked at that and thought, oh, no. Yeah, I, I mean, and I had really worked. If you read my dissertation, you find X. But then if you read the book that came of it, you find Y. <laughs> and in between, you find uh, hell. No, <laughs> because I really, you know, I really couldn't believe what I was reading. I really couldn't. I, could, I read it, and I, I say I can't believe this is true, and and uh, but it was true. Mm-hmm. And anyway, so so it's nice. It's nice to hear that that uh, the sources do uh, do mean something to us. Uh, so let's talk a little bit about uh, the sort of intellectual background, or let's say the history of ideas, the background of the history of ideas to uh, the Crusade. Uh, first of all, tell us what, is, what does the word apocalypse mean, and why, why is it important? Apocalypse is a Greek word that Latin writers borrowed, and it means essentially revelation. It's mm-hmm. the medieval Latin word for, or medieval Latin title for the book of Revelation, the last book of the Bible that, well, causes so much confusion and excitement today about what will happen at the end times. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And, and when does it sort of enter uh, currency in Christian writing? Is it early? The... Um, it's hard. the The apocalypse itself, I think, was one of the last books to be brought into the canon, and it was something that a lot of people, I think, that the church fathers did with some amount of consternation because mm-hmm. it's a fairly dangerous book when, if you take its ideas literally. Mm-hmm. The earliest reference to millenarianism, the idea that Christ will return and usher in a thousand year era of peace, that goes back to the first century, and I. I believe outside of the Gospels, the earliest Christian text is a a statement of millenarianism. Mm-hmm. So by by the time you have an established set of of biblical books, the apocalypse is in there. As I said, it's a dangerous book, particularly because of the twenty first chapter, which announces the actually it's the twentieth chapter, which announces that there will be this era of peace that Christ will return, and his return means that there will be essentially equality on earth, uh, there will be perfect justice, the world will be ruled by a panel of saintly judges rather than by an empire, rather than by a king. And if you apply this idea very literally, it's it's, it's a, for all intents and purposes, a revolutionary doctrine. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But prior to that, there was going to be quite a mess. Mm-hmm. Yes, if I recall correctly. I haven't read Revelation in a long time. Because yeah. it's dangerous, I'm afraid, what I'll do. Okay. Um, yeah. Yeah. Lawn and seven-headed beasts with you. Yeah, all that. Yeah, it's full of metaphor. what seemed to be metaphorical language that you really can't make heads or tails of. I, at least I can't. Well, one of the questions I wanted to ask you was, it was this, before we actually get into the, the motivations for launching the, the crusade, um, I was raised a Lutheran, and we read the New Testament a lot. Mm-hmm. And uh, it seems to me that the New Testament is uh, full of what is basically pacifism. You weren't supposed to fight and die for Christ. You were mm-hmm. supposed to die for Christ. 
mm-hmm. right? You were supposed to become a martyr. And in the first three centuries of the church, that's what Christians did, right? Mm-hmm. They just offered themselves up. They're like, yeah, I'm not going to fight back. I'm, yeah. I'm going to go to the wall or, as they would say, I'd go to the crucifix or get beheaded mm-hmm. or whatever, because that's what Christ did. I'm mm-hmm. going to fight because I have to turn the other cheek and love thy neighbor and all their stuff. Mm-hmm. How, did, how did people in the 11th century get from that to we really ought to march to the uh, Holy Land and pretty much kill everybody in our path who disagrees with us? <laughs> um, I'm not... I'm not sure if you, if one can draw a direct. <laughs> I don't. I didn't say it was direct. Yeah. I'm just asking you a hard question. <laughs> the gospel does have a couple of passages in it. I, I don't recall the verses offhand. Maybe maybe you will. Where Christ says um, that he come, he will come bearing the sword, mm-hmm. and there is a lot of image of hellfire and damnation, not just in Revelation, but in what are called mini apocalypses in the gospel where Christ tells you this is how to recognize the signs of the last days. Mm-hmm. The martyrdom question is really interesting because uh, martyrdom does mean you know, dying while witnessing for the faith. Mm-hmm. I think that that's the technical definition of it. So to get from that notion to going out and fighting in a war, and if you happen to die in the war, that makes you a martyr. That That is a huge leap. I don't think it was official church policy. Um, I've, I don't think that the Pope or the high-level preachers threw around the language of martyrdom lightly. And I, just, I think that in part because after, I, I was very fortunate to spend a year in Rome and walking around Rome and visiting the catacombs. I think if you live in Rome, you've got a pretty clear sense of what a martyr is. <laughs> um, say, if, you, yeah. if you live elsewhere in Europe... Um, you might be a little more flexible about how you define it. Anyway, I think that mar- the idea of crusaders as martyrs developed on the march. Mm-hmm. I think it probably developed fairly early that um, as a way of building morale, keeping enthusiasm going when whenever somebody died on the on the march, there was a tendency to you know to celebrate them as martyrs and there were, there, there developed a belief as well which we might want to get into later that people who had died on crusade came back in later battles to to help the crusaders win. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think we I think we will talk about that in a little while. Uh, let me ask you another question, a terminological question. Uh, crusades. They, they of course didn't call it a crusade. Uh, no, they hadn't been the word yet. Yeah, what, what was it to them? Uh, they called it either the pilgrimage, the crusaders themselves they called pilgrims. Sometimes they called it the route uh, or the way. And actually, sometimes they called the crusaders simply the ituri, which is those who are going to go. Uh-huh. Yeah. So very uh, vague, indistinct language. It's really only towards the end of the 12th century that the word crusader and crusade enters into common parlance. Mm-hmm. So trace very briefly, if you will, the uh, origins of the First Crusade. How, how did it all get started? Uh, the traditional jumping off points, the Council of Claremont in 1095 in November. That's when Pope Urban II traveled to France. And I, I have a cat going a little crazy in the background. Okay, we like cats on okay. your history. All right, we, we do. The first, with Pope Urban II traveled into France and proclaimed an expedition to Jerusalem before a, a fairly large church council. And the bishops and priests and monks in attendance and the laymen as well, then went back home and took this message to, well, to the, the diocese and provinces around France and into Germany as well. I think, though, rather than creating a movement, as it were, Pope Urban II was really 
sort of tapping into a pre-existing enthusiasm, that there was already a lot of excitement and talk about the need to liberate Jerusalem, and that when Pope Urban II made this sermon, he he had a, a, a pretty good hunch that this was going to be what people wanted to hear. Mm-hmm. So, but I have to, again, I'm calling upon uh, what I learned from Pastor Trost. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> he, he'll be surprised to learn that I learned anything. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, the, uh, uh, my, Christ's kingdom is not of this world. Mm-hmm. Jerusalem has nothing to do with it. Isn't that right? I, you well, know, it might as well be, uh, I don't know, uh, 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 Queens. Mm-hmm. You know, you know. It, it, it would be nice if everyone did believe that. I'll, I'll say as well as a as kind of background to, to me and why I took this perspective on the book, I think what fundamentally altered the way I decided to write the book was visiting Jerusalem in 2007. It's in February 2007, and I was there for one of the occasional riots that occurs. In this case, it was Palestinians rioting because they thought that the Israelis were going to build a bridge to the Temple Mount and use that as a way to undermine the foundations of Al-Aqsa Mosque. Um, I remember this, yeah. Yeah, and being in Jerusalem and being around this kind of sort of, well, craziness, for lack of a better word, It it gave me a very clear sense of how Jerusalem makes people just think weird things. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's a really um, it's a living place, and it can be a sort of daunting place because of the history and the myth which surrounds it. Now, Christ's kingdom is not of this world. I think for the first well for, for a good chunk of the first thousand years of Christian history, everybody was pretty happy with that idea. Medieval religion tended to be very physical and tangible. People like saints relics, they like to go on pilgrimage, they like to do stuff and touch stuff. There was a sense that when you prayed before the tomb of a saint, you weren't just sort of abstractly praying, and I think the way we imagine ourselves doing it, you were speaking into the ear of the dead saint who also was in heaven and therefore could relay your message directly to God. And there, there was a you know a sense that saints were very much alive in their tomb. Anyway, all that's a way of saying that medieval religion is it was a very physical, tangible religion. It wasn't the the kind of Lutheran Protestant religion that we're used today, or even the Vatican II religion that we're used to. Yeah. Um, Jerusalem itself was a symbol for uh, the heavenly kingdom, for heavenly Jerusalem. It was also a symbol for the church. It was a symbol for the soul at rest, a symbol for Christian peace. Historical Jerusalem, there was a a literal Jerusalem that was recognized to have existed in the Middle East and to still be there in some way, but Christians in Europe weren't all that attracted to it. They're really, for them, Jerusalem was something that they found in their, their local church or in any of the churches in Europe. Starting in the 11th century, for whatever reason, and that goes to a too fundamental a level for me to, to say what the reason was. People started getting interested in the physical city again. And I've, I think in part it had to do with the millennium, the year 1000. There was a fairly widespread belief in, well, at least in certain intellectual circles and perhaps popular circles too, that the millennium would see the return of Christ. And the belief which was gaining widespread credence was that when Christ came back, he'd be back in Jerusalem. Mm -hmm. So if you wanted to be at the front of the line for Christ's return, you needed to go to Jerusalem. 
Mm-hmm. Um, that, that, that belief was fairly widespread in the year 1000 and in the year 1033, the, the millennium anniversary of the crucifixion. In between, in the year 1009, the Caliph of Cairo, who is now generally referred to as the Mad Caliph, Al-Hakim, he destroyed the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. And that caused at least some consternation in southern France. That's, and in response to that, we have the first recorded incident, and this no doubt will come across as confusing, the first recorded incident of anti-Jewish pogroms. Mm-hmm. For a variety of reasons, Christians blamed the Jews for what the Caliph of Egypt had done in Jerusalem, mm-hmm. and they blamed the local Jews. Mm-hmm. But I think all of that... All of those events, that concurrence of events, got people interested in Jerusalem again. In 1064, 1065, there was another massive pilgrimage to Jerusalem, again, born out of the belief that the world was going to end that year on Easter. Mm-hmm. That had to do with uh, a peculiarity of the liturgical calendar where when Good Friday, which varies according to Easter, whenever it fell on the day of the Annunciation, when the angel told Mary that she was going to give birth to the Christ child— which always fell on March 25th. Whenever those two things converged, you knew the world might end. Mm-hmm. It didn't mean it was going to end, but in a year, the world would end in a year when that happened, if you follow me. Yeah, it's kind of like when, um, well, I was about to give a very profane example. I was going to say it's kind of like when the Yankees play the Red Sox. Something like yeah, that. Yeah, that's really a big game, yeah. So but you've also reminded me of the old joke, you know, this business about Jerusalem being where God dwells. You know, this joke about the Pope visiting the uh, head rabbi of Jerusalem and saying, you know, I really need to talk to God. And the head rabbi says, why, you know, I've actually have a phone right here that, that you know, I call God directly. And, and the mm-hmm. priest says, yeah, well, that, that, that's really great. It really must be expensive though. How much is the call? He goes, well, don't worry about it. It's a local call. Yeah, <laughs> that's a good one. Yeah. Um, so uh, what, what the heck did they know about Jerusalem though? These uh, really Northern Europeans, what, what did they know? I don't think they knew a whole lot about it. they, they would have known what they could pick up from the Bible, that it was a land flowing with milk and honey. Um, therefore, if, Ouch. Yeah, no doubt, surrounded Ouch. by fields and um, all the food and water you could want. It was California. <laughs> they, from, um, they would have known from pilgrims a little about the journey. They would have known it was a long way away. They believed it was the center of the earth. That um, it's, and I think the the best way to visualize it is that Jerusalem, for medieval Europeans, was like the North Pole is for us. It's how you orient yourself yeah. around in the world. Mm-hmm. It's like the East Pole of the, of the Earth. Mm-hmm. Um, and they also would have known that the road to Jerusalem was getting a lot more violent or a lot more dangerous. I don't think they would have understood why. As historians with sort of a, with a global view of things, we can say that in the 1050s, the Seljuk Turks um, rode out of the steppes of Central Asia, uh, established themselves as sultans of Baghdad, and as a result, they well threw they they threw off the balance of power that had existed for a hundred years in the Middle East, and the Seljuk Turks, for the first time in over a hundred years, started to advance against the Byzantine Empire. Uh, they also captured Jerusalem from the Egyptians who had controlled it for about 100 years at that point. So there was political chaos in the Middle East, and there were there, the what had been a fairly stable frontier society had become a, well, an unstable, violent frontier society. 
As far as the pilgrims could tell, though, who would have known very little about Islam, including they wouldn't have known the words Islam or Muslim, uh, let alone Sunni or Shia. What do they call them? Call them Hagarites or what? Uh, well, the, the politically correct term, as it were, in the 11th century was Saracen. Saracens, yeah. Uh-huh. And, but there was some debate in Europe whether Saracen or Hagarite was the more appropriate term. Uh-huh. Um, Hagarite was considered more insulting. Oh. But uh, as, from their perspective, the Saracens had just gotten unruly, and there was no explanation for why. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So the uh, pilgrims were being harassed. They were being charged new tolls. The roads were getting dangerous. The 1064-1065 pilgrimage that I mentioned earlier, it got ambushed by um, an army of Turks, and it actually got saved by an army of Egyptians. Mm -hmm. Uh, So the the Sunnis ambushed and the Shias saved them. The response that one of the pilgrims had to this situation is fairly revealing. He described it as saying, it was miraculous, Satan cast out Satan. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. One evil force conquered another. Right. Uh, But at any rate, uh, they knew that the road had gotten more dangerous. They knew Jerusalem was a place loaded with historical and spiritual significance. They liked relics. They liked bodies of saints. Jerusalem as a city, from their perspective, was one giant relic. Mm -hmm. Christ had touched every corner of it. The Virgin Mary had touched every part of it. I don't think they were aware that Jerusalem had, in fact, been destroyed by the Romans and then really rebuilt. Right, yeah. from their perspective, they were going right back to where Christ had lived. And the the city, in their imagination, would be sort of glowing with spiritual radiation. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And one of the interesting things I, I thought you were about to touch on it is that uh, the, the, the Christian idea of this holy place, and this would include Rome too, mm-hmm. did kind of, uh, uh, it, it, it varied from abstract to concrete because... The Christians were always founding new Jerusalems in various mm-hmm. places and new Romes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and and so when they become fixed on the actual Jerusalem, it's kind of an interesting moment, at least for me. I know that Rome wanders around a lot, mm-hmm. and and then of course you know Constantinople and so on and so forth. And then these new Jerusalems that you find, uh, uh, Jerusalem certainly does too. Another a building trend in the 11th century was of. Uh, Architects started attaching round chapels to churches, round churches within churches that were intended to represent the Holy Sepulcher, Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. were in theory modeled after them. You can still visit lots of them in in Europe. Uh, There's a a famous one in Bologna, for example. Mm -hmm. So um, people were... People are visiting replicas of Jerusalem all the time, and um, and I, I agree with you. It's a very interesting moment. Or Orientalism 1.0. Yeah, <laughs> I missed that one. The, uh, the so how does the, how is the thing organized logistically? I mean, one of the things I learned from your book was that uh, that it did, you know I, I always kind of imagined a, a, a sort of huge mass of people three miles wide, you know, mm-hmm. and eighteen miles deep trekking off. But in fact, it was little rivulets of of people, separate armies under mm-hmm. different kinds of folks. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, there were seven, seven or eight different departures. Uh, the, when the Pope proclaimed it, he sort of, he said, let's, let's aim to go in August of next year. But most armies didn't make that date. The first armies to leave were inspired more directly, not by the Pope, but by a so-called popular preacher named Peter the Hermit. Peter the Hermit, yeah. I think Peter was out preaching Jerusalem before the Pope did. According to 
some fairly early traditions. In fact, the whole idea was Peter the Hermit's. He told Pope Urban II that he should make the, he should preach a sermon, um, and then Peter went off on his own doing the same thing. He traveled around northern France and he raised um, he raised or inspired about four major armies. Uh, they're usually called popular crusaders, and the intent of that label is to say they were ordinary people or even peasant armies. Mm-hmm. But in fact, there were a lot of aristocrats who were, were leading these groups. They also were the armies which decided to start out the crusade by massacring Jews. Mm-hmm. Um, after Peter the after Peter's armies left, princely armies formed, and these armies coalesced around particular leaders mainly from what we think of today as France, but also from what, well, the Lorraine or Lotharingia, that area of Germany that we fought World Wars One and Two over. Mm-hmm. Um, so that those army, that army was led by uh, somebody named Duke Godfrey, who would go on to become the first king of Jerusalem. The brother of the king of France led a small army, the Duke of Normandy, the Duke of Flanders raised armies. And in the south of France, uh, Count Raymond, who was probably the richest of all the crusade leaders, he raised a, um, probably the largest army of them all. But no, they, they weren't put together by a central force, by a, by a single charismatic leader. They were put together by different leaders. If you joined the crusade, you were expected to pay your own way. It was a huge financial commitment. There was no sort of as we would think of today, there was no sort of central mess hall on crusade. You were responsible for feeding yourself. Uh, if you had a particularly generous lord, he would provide you with with um, with the necessities of life, with sustenance. But it was very much a ground-up organization. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And how many people are we talking about here over the entire span, let's say at departure? Uh, at departure, I think the, the low-end estimates tend to be about 80,000 people. Mm-hmm. I think that's probably a fair estimate for the princely armies. I think if you throw in here, the hermits followers, it could go up to anywhere, um, even up to 200,000 people altogether. This included not just warriors, but it included, um, well, if if you're a knight, you've got to have a squire. You've got to have people who are your arms bearers. It included foot soldiers. It included women and children. It included um, priests, a few monks, a few bishops, and it included large armies of just poor pilgrims, mm-hmm. people who were traveling to Jerusalem as, well, as pilgrims were supposed to do, unarmed. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's another question, again, kind of a pastor trosty question. So these people were setting off uh, with the allowance of the, the Pope to mm-hmm. uh, uh, liberate Jerusalem, but in the process they were going to kill people. Mm-hmm. That's a sin. Mm-hmm. Now, w- w- were they given any kind of... Um, I, I want to say free pass. Were they given indulgences or something? Yeah. For how, how was it allowed? As a good Lutheran, indulgence probably is a word that's yeah. <laughs> very much in your, your theological furniture. I'm, I'm, yeah, um, I'm scowling right now. <laughs> it doesn't come off very well on the radio. Would that I could see that. <laughs> um, the the Pope did give them an indulgence, and it's um, it's a a perfectly fair question. One doesn't need to have the Lutheran background or be a a modern Christian to recognize there is a contradiction between thou shalt not kill and go off and kill Saracens. Um, And, and in fact, well, we, when we fight wars today, we still talk about just war Mm -hmm. and we have a sense that war is a necessary evil. It's something you don't want to do, but sometimes nations have to do it. Mm -hmm. I, I think from our perspective, although it's, 
well, there are still obviously controversial cases today and questions of war crimes, but there's a, there's a sense that soldiers who kill in war, um, it's a morally neutral act. Mm-hmm. It's something that they had to do. Mm-hmm. In the Middle Ages, actually, they went a little further than that for typical warfare. War could be just, it could be even endorsed by the Pope, but it was still sinful. Mm-hmm. The classic example is the Norman Conquest of 1066, which was endorsed by Pope Alexander, and he actually sent the papal banner so that the Normans could carry it into battle to say the Pope has said, you're in the right. When the Norman Conquest was over, then the Pope assigned penance to all of the Norman soldiers. Mm -hmm. Any violent act they had done during the course of the battle, they had to do penance for because it was sinful. Mm -hmm. So war, in fact, wasn't... Even when it was a necessary evil, it was still evil. Still evil, yeah, yeah, right. And that—that's for a you know best case moral war that um, that you can imagine. Most warfare was just um, flat out evil. Yeah. So, uh, the Crusade offered a rather startling solution to this problem. That is, the Pope said um, he didn't say you'll be martyrs if you go on a crusade, but he said in a fairly carefully worded passage that if you set off for Jerusalem with the intention of liberating it and not for uh, the sake of profit or for the love of violence, then that journey will count as an indulgence for all the sins you've confessed. Mm -hmm. So in other words, you wouldn't have to perform penance for any of the sins you'd committed up to that point. Mm -hmm. Uh, This is a revolutionary idea because even in its most conservative sense, the Pope is saying not just that war is not evil, but in fact war itself is, uh, is good. Mm-hmm. that if you kill your enemy, it doesn't only not detract from your store of virtues, it adds to it. Mm. To a more virtuous person to have done this. So from the perspective of the warrior, this is a really exciting idea. This is this is a way to solve your salvation dilemma. And mm-hmm. not only, well, it actually lets you do what you love to do, which is fight and kill. Yeah. Yeah, I'm not sure, quite sure what kind of a contribution that is to theology, but in any event, <laughs> um, I it lies at the root of the eventual, well, the eventual crisis that indulgence creates for uh, the Catholic Church in the 16th century. Yeah, yeah, I suspect you're right. So Peter the Hermit heads off, um, but mm-hmm. on the way, uh, he and his fellow pilgrims stop in some very nice places. Uh, I think they're in the Rhine River Valley or something like that. The Mosul River Valley, maybe? Uh, the Rhine. The Rhine, yeah. And uh, I've been to some of these places. They're lovely. And they decide that they're going to kill Jews. Mm-hmm. Uh, why do they do that? And one of the things about your book that I really like, I'm sorry to cut you off there, but you, you point out that this isn't a long Christian tradition. This is the beginning of that long oh. Christian tradition. <laughs> and so they were acting in a way which was very strange. Yeah, this was new. The only other... The only previous pogrom is the one I mentioned earlier in 1009 in response to the news that the Holy Sepulchre had been destroyed. And that makes it, well, it's fairly striking that in both cases, something is happening at Jerusalem or about to happen at Jerusalem. And this makes people want to kill Jews. There's there's some deep-seated connection there. And I think that the answer lies in basic apocalyptic thought. That is that one of the signs of the end times, not pronounced by Christ, but fairly accepted by in conventional wisdom in the 11th century, is that all the Jews will convert. There will be no Jews left mm-hmm. at the end of time. What is striking about a lot of these um, these pogroms? Uh, let me let me 
step back a minute and say, from a good 21st capitalist perspective, there seems to be an obvious answer, which is Jews were rich and you're killing the Jews to get their money. Jews were doing pretty well. They weren't quite as, as, as directly associated with money lending in the 11th century as we imagine them in the Middle Ages. Mm-hmm. But what's striking about the threats and the pogroms is that the leaders, when they confronted the Jews, did not say your money or your life. Use the common bandit phrase. What they said is your religion or your life, Mm -hmm. that you have to convert to Christianity or we're going to kill you. Mm -hmm. And I think they were, at the risk of using an unpleasant phrase, they were out to solve the Jewish problem. Um, They wanted to make sure there were no Jews left at home before they went off to do God's work and bring about end times in the Holy Land. One of the one of the other clues to this is that the leader who was most associated with these violent pogroms was somebody named Imako of Flonheim, fairly minor league aristocrat in Northern Europe. He, according to Jewish accounts, not to Christian accounts, he had set out the rumor that he was going to be crowned king at Constantinople in Jerusalem. This fits in with an end time with the, with the most common and popular prophetic model of the end times in the Middle Ages. That's what we usually call the last world emperor. The idea that a Roman emperor will appear and he will, will revivify the power of Rome. He will unite the Greek and Roman worlds, which is to say Rome and Constantinople, and then he'll go to wear his crown in Jerusalem. And this will begin the final acts of Christianity when Antichrist will appear and the last battles will be fought. Mm-hmm. So Imico seems to have been claiming this mantle for himself, and God only knows why. He got people to believe him. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And, I, go ahead. Yeah, I was going to ask a, a question that comes from uh, some of my own research, not actually research, but just reading. You know, mm-hmm. the uh, <clears throat> the Muscovites who I studied, these are mm-hmm. uh, sort of early modern Russians. Uh, they, uh, uh, the Orthodox Church there, preached a lot of anti-Semitism. And the really curious part about it is there were no Jews in Muscovy. They'd huh. never seen one. And and what did these Northern Europeans know about Jews? I thought most of the Jews that they would encounter would be in the Rhine River Valley. Had Peter ever met a Jew, seen a Jew? I mean, did he know what they were? Uh, yeah, they, they would have known Jews fairly well at, at this point. I think starting around uh, the turn of the millennium, there had been fairly extensive Jewish immigration to the north from, uh-huh. from areas like Spain and, um, and southern France. And I think the Jews immigrated be- there because they saw real economic opportunity. Yeah urbanization was beginning so there there were there were definite jewish communities in the north people would have seen jews mm-hmm. and um this makes them very distinct from muslims most of the crusaders would never have seen muslims yeah. as i said earlier they would have never heard the word right. muslim before mm-hmm. um and their understanding of islam would have been that um as much as they would have had any that these people were idol worshipers they worshiped a god named muhammad um, possibly they worshipped other gods named Apollo and Termagant. Who, um, so so anyway, that they they had very wild ideas about Muslims, but Jews they would have been familiar with, and this this was a real um, a real revolution in attitudes. Mm-hmm. So off they go. Uh, these these uh, seven armies, let's say, uh, mm-hmm. are something in that um, mm-hmm. so, something in that number. Uh, and they uh, head to Constantinople through a number of routes, and, and they get there. What did the what did the Byzantines think about these folks? I, the Byzantines 
were themselves partly responsible for this happening because they had been writing to European leaders, including Pope Urban II, also Count Robert of Flanders, saying we need military help against these Seljuk Turks. And I, I think Alexius I, who was emperor of Constantinople, was something of a public relations genius. He knew that the way to really inspire Europeans to to come and help him was to stress how many relics they had in Constantinople. This was a spiritually very important city. They needed help. So they'd been asking for help, and they'd been framing it in religious terms. My sense is, best-case scenario, Alexius was hoping for about 5,000 well-trained mercenaries. <laughs> um, and I, I can always imagine him... I always imagine him looking out his window one day and seeing Peter the Hermit's armies arriving by thousands and thinking, oh, God, what have I done? Uh, so this was going to be a much bigger logistical problem for him than he had expected. All of these armies were arriving one after another, all hoping to be fed and housed for the winter and all hoping for support to get on the way to Jerusalem. Mm-hmm. And what did he do? Um, it, initially, he didn't handle it very well. With Peter's armies, he kind of hurried them on toward Nicaea. He told them, don't go all the way to Nicaea because you're going if you do, the Turks will, will attack you and you know, there's going to be trouble. Um, but Peter, the hermit's armies didn't listen. They didn't mind well. They in fact decided to attack Nicaea and they got wiped out almost to a man. Probably a few hundred survived. Mm-hmm. Um, when the first armies arrived, he tried similar rough treatment um, with them. He tried to, to force them away from the city this led to actual military conflicts. The first Christian versus Christian conflicts on the crusade happened during this, during the first crusade. Um, there was fighting outside the gates and eventually um, through, uh, I guess, sheer negotiation, willpower and the distribution of, of food and also well, bribing the leaders, Alexius managed to calm those first armies down. By the time the last armies arrived, he'd gotten a lot better at it. He, mm-hmm. he knew how much food to give them. He knew how many people to let into the city. And and you can see a real evolving attitude among the crusaders. The first ones to arrive hated Alexius. Um, the leadership hated him. They thought he was conspiring with the Muslims against them. The last armies to arrive thought Alexius was just wonderful. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So he uh, sort of funnels them through Constantinople. Mm-hmm. Yes. And, and he, he sends them well, let, uh, let me clarify from his perspective, what he wants them to do is take back the cities that Constantinople has lost mm-hmm. recently to the Seljuk Turks. Mm-hmm. And this would be like Nicaea. Nicaea is the, the first one. Nicaea. So do they get Nicaea? They do get Nicaea. They lay siege to Nicaea. It's an impossible city to besiege on land because it, it sits on a lake. Yeah. Um, and they were always able to sort of funnel supplies into the, the city through the lake. Uh, So, in order to completely seal the siege, Alexius um, and the Crusaders together accomplished the astonishing feat of uh, transporting ships over mountains, getting them onto the lake, and sealing the city off completely. Nicaea had only recently been captured by the Turks, and there was probably a, a fairly strong contingent within the city sympathetic toward the Greeks. And they negotiated a surrender and negotiated it in such a way so that before the Crusaders knew it had happened, the Greeks had gotten into the city uh-huh. and reestablished government on it. This no doubt disappointed a lot of the common soldiers who'd ho- been hoping to plunder the city and well, restock their supplies. Right, right. And is it at this point that we start to see, I'm sorry, I just can't remember, mm-hmm. that we start to see some very odd um, 
behavior in terms of how they practiced warfare? Uh, things start, start to change at this time. I, one of the less reported moments of the siege of Nicaea happens in the first battle. The leader of Nicaea, the, the governor of it, was a, a, a Turk named Kilij Arslan. He led a relief force, and it was repelled by the, the Franks, which is, say, the Crusaders. Mm-hmm. And after or after the battle ended, the Franks decapitated a lot of the corpses, which is something they didn't do in, in Europe. They, they didn't do in fighting Christian armies. Uh, they, they didn't uh, behead dead bodies. And then they attached, well, they rode back to the city, a lot of them now um, wearing Turkish skulls as saddle ornaments. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So th- this was a, 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 a pretty shocking moment. When I, when I was reading these chronicles through the first time, I also happened by accident to be reading Blood Meridian by Cormac McCarthy. No. <laughs> the, the cowboys in that book do the same thing with Indian heads. Yeah, yeah, um, right. Well, uh, apparently um, Ivan the Terrible's Aprichniki did the same thing. I guess this was a, it's kind of a trope. Yeah, the Crusaders, yeah. they, they actually, it's interestingly enough, they blamed it on the Muslims. Yeah. They say they learned this behavior from the Easterners. And I, I think there was, in fact, some truth to that, that mm-hmm. this was something that did go on in the East. They additionally would, would um, they, they attached the, rather, they, they filled up catapults with Turkish heads and catapulted them into the city of Nicaea to wear mm-hmm. out the morale. They sent a wagon full of them back to the emperor to show how well things were going. Mm-hmm. Uh, so they they started to grow accustomed to the idea that heads were to be played with yeah. while on yeah. campaign. Yeah. So uh, they've traveled at, at this point uh, near a thousand miles, mm-hmm. um, and things begin to break down a little bit. I mean, people start to go off the range, as mm-hmm. we would say. Uh, can you talk a little bit about that? Um, the well, I've. By going off the range, do you mean deserting the army? Yeah, well, they're deserting the army, and they start to do things that aren't, let's say, leading them directly to Jerusalem. Yeah, the first, um, I think there's a desire among a lot of crusade historians to make everything the crusaders, everything they did seem rational. Like there there was a higher purpose to it. Mm -hmm. Um, I, I think, though, to do that, we're arguing with a bit of hindsight. After... After the capture of Nicaea, the Crusaders continued on towards Antioch, a fairly long march. Mm-hmm. Along the way, part of the army broke off, and they they traveled through an area called Cilicia. Um, while traveling through there, they captured the city of Tarsus, where St. Paul was from, and there was a sense of, well, this is, our, this is a place full of religious significance. But I, I think the leaders of that army really were out looking out looking for plunder and out and interested in advancing their own careers a bit. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of the leaders of that expedition, uh, whose name was Baldwin, it's actually the younger brother of Godfrey, future king of Jerusalem. Um, rather than rejoin the army, he continued on into what's uh, a city called Edessa. Uh, it's now sort of on the Syrian-Turkish border. And he established himself as Count of Edessa. The, this was the first of what became known as the Crusader States. The rest of the army went on toward Antioch. But uh, at this point, you do see some breakdown in discipline in the ranks, and, and you, do, you do get a fairly clear sense that some of the Crusade leaders, at least, are not as invested in the notion of holy war as a lot of the others are. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I see. So <laughs> I was going to say, we're, we're um, 
I'm not saying we're not running out of time, but I want to hurry along here mm-hmm. to get to the climax of the story, yeah. uh, if it has a climax. And uh, mm-hmm. so they work their way um, through the Levant, and they uh, and they finally do make it to Jerusalem. What happens there? They make it to Jerusalem after an eight-month siege at Antioch. Yeah. That's where things really start to go off, well, off the rails of reality, yeah. where soldiers report seeing armies of saints riding down from mountains to help them in battle. St. Andrew starts appearing regularly and talking to one visionary in particular about, well, both where to find particularly powerful relics and also, well, even battle strategy. Um, And eventually, though, after Antioch is captured, after a, a long march through what is today Syria and Lebanon, after a siege at Mara, uh, the city of Mara, which includes, well, rather theatrical acts of cannibalism on the part of the Crusaders, where they seem to have put Muslim bodies on spits in front of the city and roasted them and ate them mm-hmm. as a way to demoralize the defenders. Finally, they get to Jerusalem. Um, it's a fairly rump army at this point. Probably about 10,000 of the original eighty to 100,000 soldiers are left. Uh, this has... the. The decline in numbers has been a result of death by battle, obviously, death by disease, famine, desertion. A lot of the crusaders deserted at Antioch because the siege had just seemed hopeless. A lot of them deserted at Mara because they were put off by the cannibalism. So a very small group arrives at Jerusalem. One of the soldiers meets up with a hermit who claims to have a pipeline to God. It's a local call, as you said, in Jerusalem. And he tells them, Attack the city right away. You don't really need siege equipment. God will let you in. So within a week, the Crusaders attack the city. In fact, it doesn't work at all. They only have one siege ladder. They can't get into the city. And they settle in for what looks to be another long siege. They can't afford it to be too long a siege, though, because Jerusalem, which had been a Turkish city, has since been recaptured by the Egyptians. Jerusalem is an Egyptian city. If they wait too long, a relief army is going to arrive from Egypt and wipe them out. So they have to get into the city quickly. To do this requires that they get their spiritual house in order and their military house. The military house part's fairly easy to explain. They set up two massive siege towers to try to penetrate the walls of the city. The spiritual house requires, well, fasting. Not too difficult to do when you're in the middle of it. They also um, conduct religious processions around the city. The Muslim defenders of the city apparently take great delight in ridiculing them during these. They set up uh, mock crucifixion scenes on the walls of the city and urinate on them and call up to the soldiers and say, look what we're doing. Um, But anyway, the soldiers themselves, they walk, they, they conduct a procession around the city, very deliberately intended to recall the Battle of Jericho where the soldiers marched around the city and called the wall, caused the walls to collapse, the, the Israelite soldiers. They go up to the Mount of Olives where Christ is expected to appear and where Antichrist is expected to appear as well and listen to sermons about what they're going to do. And then on July 15th, they finally break through the walls of the city and get into Jerusalem. It is, um, in every sense, a climactic scene because... Well, they wipe out the garrison almost to a man. The first day they get into the city, there is indiscriminate killing of men, men, women, and children. The the area around the Temple Mount, according to the earliest chronicles, the streets are flowing ankle deep with Saracen blood. 
um, according to later chronicles, uh, chroniclers wanted to up the ante from there. So they would say, it's not ankle deep, it's shin deep. It was deep enough that the blood was splashing into the boots of the soldiers. It actually was knee deep. The rivers of blood were running so fast that they were carrying body parts down the street. Mm-hmm. Um, and then one writer, who in fact was contemporary, says the battle was flowing as high as the horse's bridles. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's an outrageous image, but he got that from the book of Revelation or the book of the Apocalypse, where there's a there's a verse in there describing how the angel of the Lord shall take in the harvest of the earth, run it through the wine press of the Lord's wrath, and blood shall flow out as high as horses' bridles. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know if the writer who used that image really saw the blood flowing that deep, or if he just if he knew he was engaging in a literary flourish. But whatever the case, when he wanted to describe the Battle of Jerusalem, the only way he could do it was filter it all through the apocalypse. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And then over the course of the next two days, some prisoners got ransomed the next day. Um, and this led to well, consternation and debate among the crusade army. And they, they ultimately decided the only fair thing to do was to kill everyone. Mm-hmm. So then all of the prisoners who were left were killed. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Six months later, when pilgrims visited the city of Jerusalem, one of them says very graphically he had to um, use his cloak to cover his, no- his nose because the stench from dead bodies was still so bad. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. What happened to the civilians in the city? I say they they were they were they, killed. Were, they were all killed too. All killed. And so, about how many people were killed? A few were left in order to um, uh, a few were spared so that they could help dispose of the corpses. I see. Yeah. We don't know how many were killed. Muslim estimates. One Muslim historian says seventy thousand. That's way too high. Yeah. I think he's exaggerating for literary effect. Uh-huh. Um, other sources might put it around ten thousand. Again, a lot of my colleagues in in crusade history have have pushed the numbers down as far as possible to say, well, the massacre really wasn't all that bad, but the low end estimate is 3000. Mm-hmm. And if you think, well, 3000, that's the number killed on nine yeah. 11. And that's 3000 in New York city. It was a, a horrible thing. 3000 in a medieval city. Yeah. Um, that would be unthinkable. It's also not 3000 people killed by bombs and bullets. Right. It's 3000 people knifed at close range. Mm-hmm. Hacked to death. Yeah. So uh, what did the crusaders do then? What did they do in Jerusalem? Did they sit and wait for the, uh, the uh, end time? I, I think a few of them were, were hoping it would happen. Some crusaders during the battle claimed to have seen a rider on a white horse charge down from the hill, leading the troops over the walls. This is again, an apocalyptic image. Uh, the white horse was associated with Christ and, he would appear at the end days on, on a white horse, all clad in white armor, as this writer was. When it didn't happen immediately, they set about creating a government of Jerusalem. And this this is both high political and theological drama, because you don't just make a king of Jerusalem lightly. Uh, when you make a, a king of Jerusalem, you're recreating the line of kingship that goes back to David. David, yeah, the Davidic monarchy. Mm-hmm. And in uh, some of the, the medieval manuscripts I've looked at, they'll, they have lists of kings of Jerusalem, starting with Saul and David, running through the Old Testament kings, and then seamlessly going straight to Godfrey. Mm. Um, so you're, you're reigniting that line. You're also potentially bringing about the last days, because one of the signs will be that there will be a king in Jerusalem. Mm-hmm. And I, there, I, I think this made a lot of people uneasy. And the compromise that the Crusaders seemed to have reached was Godfrey would become king, but he wouldn't wear a crown. Mm-hmm. 
Uh, that was just too loaded a symbol. Uh, so in the immediate aftermath of the battle, there was still um, expectation that the, the apocalypse might be happening. It was aided along because word came once Jerusalem had fallen that Egypt indeed was advancing a large relief force against against the Franks, and they had to fight one more battle. Some people couldn't believe there was one more battle to be fought. I, I think the reason why is because this battle might very well be it. Mm-hmm. And from from the, if you say it from well with modern terminology, if you say that well the French armies were going to fight the Egyptians, that sounds pre-Napoleonic, but not necessarily apocalyptic. Mm-hmm. If you use the terms the Crusaders used, it was Jerusalem was advancing an army to fight Babylon, mm-hmm. Babylon being the name for Egypt that yeah. was in most common parlance. Jerusalem against Babylon is the very definition of the apocalyptic final battle. Mm-hmm. So there was one more apocalyptic battle to be fought. The Crusaders won it again. Um, alas, the world still didn't end. But I've in Jerusalem, at least for another couple of years, I think there was an ongoing sense that the apocalypse could be happening. Interestingly enough, in Europe, for another 20, 25 years, I th- within learned circles, when they dealt with the crusade and what was going on, the question they asked was not so much, what, which at least some of them asked, was not so much, is the end near, as we say today? Is, is, the, are, is the apocalypse imminent? The question they asked was, has it already happened? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, did we just see the apocalypse and are we now in sort of stoppage time before um, everything really does wrap up? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That's, that's very, that's, yeah, that's, that's a very interesting take on things. Cause we do uh, think about apocalypses in a kind of binary sense. Mm-hmm. Uh, they, uh, they aren't, and then they are. And that's that mm-hmm. there is no long transition yeah. confusion. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, I mean, it's easy to understand why they would hold fast to that mm-hmm. idea a little bit like I held fast to the thesis of my dissertation, <laughs> even though the sources showed it was wrong. <laughs> um, uh, I'm going to ask you, uh, we're, we're about out of time, but I'm going to ask you one extraordinarily open-ended question. Um, well, what are the legacies of this crusade for later European and world history? Mm-hmm. Um, I think the, I'll, I'll say with, with legacies, with, with, with historical legacies, as I'm, I'm sure you'll agree, they change over time. And yeah. a lot of it depends on how you choose to remember things. But with the with the Crusades, there was an immediate adoption of a vocabulary to explain it that I, I think is still with us today. And that is when people in Europe wrote about what the Crusade was and what had happened, they would say, look what we Westerners have done. And the Latin word is almost, it's occidentales. Mm-hmm. Um, Look what the Westerners have done in the East. The West has conquered the East. Mm-hmm. Uh, they they described it in precisely the terms that we use today to talk about global conflict, West mm-hmm. and East. So as much, I, I don't think from the, from the Muslim perspective, from the Eastern perspective, as you will, it was a clash of civilizations. From the Western perspective, though, it was. And the vocabulary they used to describe it is the same one we use today. So I, I think that notion of West versus East is probably the most enduring legacy. Another way to describe it is to talk about well, Christendom. And I think the notion of a geographic Christendom came out of the First Crusade. Mm-hmm. The idea that there is there is a sort of line you can draw on a global map to say this is the Christian world and it includes Jerusalem. Uh, that 
that sort of sense of a geographic Christendom as something as well. So no, and, no more, no more, as Pastor Trost would say, when it, wherever there are two of us. No. <laughs> <laughs> Not wherever. As long as we're here and there are two of us, you're, you're okay. Yeah. So I, I, I'd say those are the most enduring legacies. And obviously it has poisoned the waters between the Christian world and the Muslim world. Yeah. Um, and that's something that has been a, a, a fairly enduring legacy. A lot of, of my critics and just sort of, I think, armchair historians and commentators will say, but, you know, the, the Muslims started it. Yeah, right. And to a degree that, well, you know, the Muslims started it in the sense that they built an empire mm-hmm. on the ruins of the Persian Empire and on the failing Byzantine Empire. They built an empire out of that. The crusade, though, was different because the conflict was described in purely spiritual terms. Mm-hmm. So this this was spiritual warfare. It wasn't territorial empire building. Um, it was a way of spreading Christianity around the globe. And in order to ultimately respond to this, Muslim leaders learned to adopt very similar language of holy war. So this is, I'm sure, going way too far and being way too sloppy, but since I'm not writing it, I can afford to do that. Yeah. Um, the kind of modern jihadist culture, I think, is a reaction to crusading. Mm-hmm. Well, it does happen again and again. I mean, they go back. Yeah. And, uh, you know, and you know, when the Turks press into Europe, uh, mm-hmm. they know what they're doing and they remember. Yeah. And then another thing is, you know, this business with the Jews, it continues. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it set a precedent that really, you know, it kind of had traction. And mm-hmm. uh, it's an awful thing. And uh, it's, it's not a continuous line, but the memory is yeah, all there. Right. All you exactly have to do is right. poke at it and it comes back to life. Yeah, yeah. Well, um, Pastor Trost and I enjoyed talking with you today. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> uh, uh, Jay, really, thanks very much for being on the show. Let me ask our final uh, question, our final traditional question on New Books in History, and that is, what are you working on now? Um, I'm working in part on a textbook related to the, the First Crusade project. So I'll, I'll be presenting my apocalyptic ideas in the form of a, of a source book reader. Mm-hmm. Perhaps a um, grand project, I'm going to do the obvious thing and write a sequel. Yeah. And talk about the first 50 years of the Kingdom of Jerusalem. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we very much look forward to that. And again, I want to thank you for being on the show. We've been talking to Jay Rubenstein about his uh, terrific book, Armies of Heaven, The First Crusade and the Quest for Apocalypse. Jay, thanks so much for being on the show today. Thanks a lot, Marshall. It's been fun. Sure. Bye-bye. You've been listening to an interview with Jay Rubenstein about his book, Armies of Heaven, The First Crusade and the Quest for Apocalypse. I'm Marshall Poe, the host of New Books in History. I hope you have a great week.